What's up, bingers? If you happen to listen to my other show, Truth and Justice, you know that I've spent a lot of time picking apart wrongful convictions in Harris County, Texas. And lo and behold, the case that my guests and I will be discussing this week is a case out of that same DA's office. And guess what? It just might be, in my opinion, another wrongful conviction. To discuss the case, I'm joined today by the host of the fantastic podcast, Southern Fried True Crime, Erica Kelly. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Uh, so, Erica, how is life down in – you're in Tennessee. Are you from Tennessee or you're in Tennessee? Yes, I am. I'm from Tennessee and I'm in Tennessee. Nice. What it part of Tennessee? It's rainy these days. <laughs> is it? Middle Tennessee, right outside of Nashville. Yeah. Oh, such a cool area. I like that area a lot. You ever go over it's to beautiful. over to spend any time over by Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge, that, that area? We went to Pigeon Forge in uh, last or this just past July uh, uh, for a week. I've had back surgeries. I couldn't do anything fun except – go eat and <laughs> right. look at nature but it was fun you know yeah i love really it there that, that's that's my wife and i is like one of our favorite quick vacations so we can drive there in about seven hours and get away actually that's mm-hmm. where i proposed to my wife in gatlinburg ah mm-hmm. well that's a sweet place to do that yeah. yeah lucky for me she said yes we got cool pictures otherwise i would have made her walk home <laughs> <laughs> all right so so tell me a little about yourself i've been i've been listening to your podcast is and particularly on the case that we're going to be talking about today which is Okay. Fascinating. But but t- so you have been you've been doing your podcast for about 4 years. You started in 2017? Yeah. It'll be 4 years in October. It's, oh. It feels like longer. I took about 6 months ahead to get started, you know, with branding and everything. Uh-huh. But, um yeah. So how how did it, well, I guess first things first, what did you what did you do for a living before you were a podcaster? <laughs> I was an accountant. <laughs> in a ca- <laughs> Not like a CPA but like an accounting manager. I was in, you know, uh it was boring. Payroll, that kind of stuff. Nice. Uh, yeah. So you were doing that and then you had this just this, this idea to start the podcast? Where, where did that come yeah, from? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. Um, I was a commuter for a long time and there just wasn't a lot of true crime podcasts, which is, you know, back then anyway, this has been a long time ago, but um, that I could find and that I could love, you know, and uh-huh. Serial kicked it off for everybody. And I was like, I could do something like that. And I actually switched jobs. I commuted for like 10 years. Okay. And finally switched jobs, got one in my hometown and was like, what the hell do I do with all this free time? Uh-huh. And I was like, you know what? This will be kind of fun, you know, do it for fun, do it as a hobby. And I'm too nerdy, too uh, OCD to do <laughs> really anything <laughs> as a hobby. So I really dug in and learned about the branding and taught myself, you know, there's a difference between writing to speak and writing to read, uh-huh. and, you know, recording and editing and all of that good stuff. So. Yeah, and I I think that gave me a leg up too. Yeah, you just took it as a quick hobby by spending six months branding and everything. everything. <laughs> Which, by the way, I could well, use some I lessons mean... in that. I've been doing it for <laughs> six years, and I still haven't figured out how to brand myself. I don't know. Like, I put out a um a trailer, and people freaked out. And it's something about Southern Voice, and you know the music or whatever, and they loved it. They loved the logo, and uh-huh. I was like, okay, well that's working. 
So every time I find something that works, I stick with it. Like I've always used the same music. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of podcasters love to go in and create creepy music. Mm-mm. First of all, that's extra work. <laughs> right. But like, you know, the music is part of my branding, you know. So, um, but yeah, and I got super lucky. Uh, you know, the DJ uh, Bobby Bones. Uh, I'm going to say yes, but, I'll, but I'm lying. He's not, I mean, like he's big around here, but okay. he gave me a shout out like my third episode. So I got scooped up by network pretty quickly. Oh, when wow. They heard of me. Yeah. Yeah, I got really lucky. That's awesome. And I was one of the first really true Southern podcasts. Mm-hmm. So that helped. But yeah. Yeah, I was same way. Like uh, I, have a, I have a lot of podcasters, you know, especially new and upcoming podcasters that ask, you know, what's the key to, you know, becoming successful? I'm like, I don't know. Robbie Ashaudry retweeted one of my episodes and that was all, that was it. That was the only, <laughs> that was the only reason that, you know. She- I got a shout out on my favorite murder. That's when my, I really took mm-hmm. off and actually really started making money. You know, I mean, I was making money the minute I got on the network and that was great, but not enough to quit my job. So so how long did you work before on the podcast before you were able to take the full leap and leave the job behind? Um, I think it was from October. It was a year and a half. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And the new job I had worked in um, athletics at a university i'm close to uh-huh. so it was crazy overtime i still can't believe i actually did it like go to every football <laughs> game every basketball game and then every spare minute was the podcast but it was so worth it you know like i get to do what i love now do you miss the old job or you just love doing what you do i miss my friends sometimes but you know it's also kind of nice to just work in pajamas every day <laughs> yeah and i love writing i love the research so yeah that's awesome and are, and are you a one gal team or did, I, I know you, we were talking a little bit off the air that you said at one point mm-hmm. Mike did a little bit of editing for you. What, mm-hmm. what was it? Did he just, just help you out with a couple episodes or did he do it for a while? Um, he helped me out with one. Oh, God. I was using one of those things. I can't remember what you call them. It's like this big box thing that um, it's almost like having your own little studio. I call it death head box because like you had to stick your head in it. I hate oh, yeah. it. And I had a recording that I'd split into two because I was like killing my neck uh-huh. and I had to make it work. And he sent it, I sent it to him and he fixed it and everything. But yeah, he was really cool. Uh, yeah, I've had a uh, like amateur editor that I've worked with for a couple of years. That's really helped me out. And I've worked with resonant recordings. But the biggest thing is my research assistant, Haley Gray. Mm-hmm. Um, I started working with her. Let's see. I guess it was about a year ago because it was uh, we met in person for the first time at one of the podcast festivals. And that's been, I mean, I used to work like ninety hours a week doing the research and the writing. So right. it comes to me in a packet. I might I'd read through it, do a little bit more of my own research, but yeah, it's that's incredible. Yeah, it's so I I'm similar. I went for years and years just doing everything. Well, Mike's mm-hmm. been editing for me since 2016. Um, but like the, the, the research and writing and stuff, I've, I've held on to all that. And just in the last year, like just, just even for this show, you know, Erica now, um, you know, <laughs> books the guests for me and then does like some pre-show research for me. And I'm still, I'm just getting used to like, it's like, Oh, having help. shit, I've got an interview tomorrow. <laughs> I got to research this case. I got to do all this. I'm like, Oh, look at that. Erica's got, uh, <laughs> there it is. I know I'm doing a, a collaboration with an author. I do that sometimes. They'll want me to tell their story and uh-huh. I'll promote the book, but I have to do my own outside research. So I'm not leaning too heavily. Uh-huh. So I assigned her the trials and stuff and I'm reading the book and she's just been like texting me going, Oh my God, this is crazy. Oh my God. And I'm like, you have no idea I'm reading the book. Like it's, it's kind of a fun relationship too, but it helps me keep it in perspective. It helps me focus on the creative while mm-hmm. I'm staying in line <laughs> with the trial and the legal part of it. So. That's awesome. And, and so with, like with your yeah. 
it was was she like a listener and working remotely or someone you knew or because I'm, I'm finding so many podcasters are like like drawing from their listeners to kind of help <laughs> i'm doing the same thing and i and i just think it's such a cool kind of part of the community yeah, yeah she's a friend of a friend um i know she listened to a lot of them a long time ago then once she started researching full-time it's kind of like you know you don't want to listen to it and i understand that because it's i don't watch a lot of true crime stuff on tv uh-huh. anymore or do any of that because when you're just in it every day you get tired of it but um, yeah, it was really mutual friends, and I'd heard really great things about her. So I just walked up and introduced myself. I was like, you want to start researching for my little show? And she was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it was awesome. That That's great. Yeah. But Mike, it's, it's funny you say that because like Mike, I don't think, has ever listened to an episode of Truth and Justice. <laughs> and for years, he I would like- He through it somehow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, well, he's like, I listened to it five times while I was editing it. I don't want to- Exactly. Yeah. And I was, I was like, well, don't you want to hear the- Like once Shane puts the music in and stuff and it's all, don't you want to hear? And he's like- No. Nah. No. For, for a few years, he was always <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen. And he's like, I don't want to, I don't need you in my ears anymore than I already have you in my ears. Well, people always ask me, like, do you go back and listen to your own stuff? No. No. Yeah. Most of the time, once I've done a case, and it's hilarious that I chose this one, because especially two-part cases, I am so done. Right. That sometimes it'll leave my brain. Like, I've been kind of looking over my notes going, oh, God, I remember everything right. Because people will come up to me at festivals and ask about it, and I'm like, it's it's gone. It's well, especially it's when you're doing an episodic show where you're you're typically mm-hmm. a case per per week, like it's, I, unless you yeah. unless you've done that work, which is, that's new to me. I've been doing it with this show, mm-hmm. you know, But with Truth and Justice, it's long form, so it's one case that I live for a year or six months. I, I would love to do that, like just immerse into one. But like it's it's kind of hard to immerse into one for two weeks for me, right? And then I need it out of my head because I need space for the next one. Yeah. So gets- <laughs> yeah, I've definitely got my notes open. It gets hard. Yeah. I have people will ask me about cases that I've discussed on True Crime Binge. And I'm like, yeah. wait. And also there's, you know, there's always the people don't realize there's, you know, we'll record two, three of these in a week. And so they're, you know, when you're hearing an episode, we might have recorded it a month ago and I've done five yeah, more cases exactly. since. And I'm like, I don't even, what? Who is, who are you talking about? <laughs> like, <laughs> They'll ask me something from a couple of years ago and I'm like, I'm going to have to go reread my script. Like, I don't remember what I said. I don't, it doesn't mean that it wasn't true. You know? Right. But, yeah. um, <laughs> Whatever it was, I was right. I said ago, the right thing. Out of my brain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, now, I noticed when I went to your, to your podcast page on, uh, I think it was on Apple, it said that, that you release bi-weekly, but it looked like your episodes are every week. So that's something you might want to change because it says it says on there that you release an episode. It says bi-weekly? It says something like episode, you know, episodes in a different case released every two weeks or something like that. Unless I'm mis- misread I don't it. think I actually typed that in there. Huh. It's weird. Yeah. I haven't changed anything in years. And then it was always. Well, that's I was looking really through the catalog. Strange. They were all every week. I'll look at it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and like I told you, I had some back surgeries and survived sepsis last year while COVID oh, was going on. Yeah. Um. So I was out for like four months, and then when I came back, it wasn't necessarily every week for a while. I've had to kind of. Well, maybe it just automatically it. does that, just based on when it thinks you're going. I know. I'm wondering now. I've got to go in and look. I haven't played with it in a long time because everything is through Spreaker and it shoots out through them. So usually, mm-hmm. any of my description or anything goes through that. But yeah, I need to check it out. So you had you had sepsis during COVID. Mm-hmm. Like, what was that? So when the Hospitals oh, are God. full and everything else. Like you had another horrific, big, hor- horrible problem that wasn't COVID. Yeah, it was horrific and scary. And um, plus, they dumped me out of the hospital in two weeks, which they would have kept you kept me much longer. Basically, gave me a pick line and sent me home with my poor husband to do everything for me. Like 
It was awful, but I lived through it. Oh, okay. How long was that recovery? Uh, God, I was on the pick line for, I want to say, 12 weeks. Cut. I think it all finished, like that medication all finished in December, and this all started at the end of August. I don't remember and I need that. to rewind yeah. my brain for a second. You said they sent you home? Well, I guess it was that yeah. because of COVID? Because, I mean, I have yeah. I actually know someone who died of sepsis. It's a very serious infection in your mm-hmm. in your blood. I, it, it, they just- I had like two days. And I had It was already in my blood and my bones. Another 24 to 48 hours, my organs would have shut down. God. So it was kind of freaky that they sent me home within two weeks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when I had first got there and they were, you know, checking your vitals every 15 minutes, it's, it was freaky. But um, it's almost kind of good that it happened at COVID because I had to self-isolate anyway. Right. Just to be safe. Because if I'd gotten sick on top of that, it would have been really bad. But um, yeah, it was, it was a trip to go through that. And I'm still, I mean, they say recovery is really about three years. I get really tired and I'm just like, I, I have to go take a nap. I've never been a napper. It's very right. weird. Um, but yeah, and it was four back surgeries during all that too, to correct what the original surgeon did, who gave me sepsis. Oh, that's where so, it came from, a surgery? <laughs> yeah. God, you got you could make a, so you could make a Dr. Intense. Death podcast on- You're like you that. I swear to God, <laughs> yeah. the third or fourth person to say that to me, you have no idea. I've considered doing my own episode about it and changing the names. Huh. Or, you know, screw him. Put the name out there of the doctor that I did know. it. <laughs> yeah, he lost his job and- uh, uh, her well, I've snooped him on the internet, and he's yeah. working in Connecticut now. And he waited exactly a year. That's how long it takes to bring a lawsuit in Tennessee. And because of the hospitals and the practice that he was in, or I mean, they're literally connected throughout the state. Nobody uh-huh. wanted to touch it. I mean, sepsis right. is a common thing, you know that. But it was more or less what he had done to my spine and three more surgeries to correct it that mm-hmm. I was going after, and nobody wanted to touch it. So, God, I might as well make money off of it somehow. <laughs> right? Yeah. Sell my story or do it myself. Yeah, and at least you, uh, you know, you're you you have a career now where you, you didn't, you know, you you're got you're at home working anyway, and you're once you're oh, able to recover, you could keep going. I, I was, I told my husband that and I was like, you know, if I was still in an eight to five and had to go on somewhere, I would be on disability, right? Because the big thing is, um, the last surgery I had was a fusion. They take bone from your hip and put it in your spine, mm-hmm. so I can't sit at a desk for very long. It, you know, that's painful. I have to kind of go back and forth. And if I couldn't do what I was doing from home, it would, you know, I don't know what I would do. I'd be on disability. And I feel really bad for people like, or people that didn't have insurance. I would be bankrupt. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, unreal. Anyway, I didn't mean to get on that. No, I, it, I was, it, it, it just occurred to me. I haven't, I don't think I've spoken with anybody that had any major illness during COVID time that wasn't COVID. So it was just interesting to hear what that process was. And a lot of COVID is a blur to me because of it. Sure. Because I was so out of it. You know, you're on so many different medications. Even now I'm I'm medicated. I still have to take pain pain medication and Mm -hmm. anxiety medication. And like, I almost had to shut it out once I was kind of aware of what was going on because it was scary. Right. After everything I had been through, it was just like, okay, no more. Yeah. What does Uh, your husband do for a living? Uh, he owns a pest control business, which is good because he makes his own hours and, you know, that and taking care of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no shit for the last year. I saw a meme one time. I was like, what's your husband do? He is the uh, king of putting up with my shit. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is true. Yeah. He's he's my support system. Nice. You guys have any kids or just the two of you? I He had children. Uh, I didn't, but I love them to pieces. I raised them. Mm-hmm. Uh, stepchildren. They're grown now. We hardly get to see them. Oh. So we're practically I'm empty nesters, looking, yeah. Looking forward to the day when I hardly get to see my kids. 
<laughs> just you kidding. You start to miss him, I swear to goodness. Like, I was like, oh, when are you coming to see me? <laughs> you know? I have, so. uh, my wife and I are, are, are blended too, but I have two and she has two. And so they're. Oh, wow. Big, big family. Oh, yeah. Four of them. So they're, but they're, you know, they're with, they're all with us for a week and then they're all with their other parents for a week. Um, but my, That's o- cool. my yeah. oldest is driving now. And so he comes here a lot, you know, he'll just pop in all the time. And he's like today, he was supposed to be with his mom, but he got off work and he's hanging out here all. And for a little while, I was trying to it's, work, and he came in and talked to me. I was like, you know, there was. I always wish that I, you know, hoped that someday that I'd have kids that just enjoyed hanging out with me. But uh, could you get the fuck out of here, please? Because I got work to do. Like, <laughs> like, like, I'll tell you what, though. Once you get that one that drives, whew, Aaron's this. Aaron, I know. Oh, I need you to go pick up this. It's so great. Oh, he's <laughs> never. Lie. He's never. He's always on the go. Now he, he he's in school. Then he's playing. Now he's playing tennis, and he's got a girlfriend. So it's. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, a couple of weeks ago. His mom was going out of town or something on a weekend when he was supposed to be with her. And she's like, do you mind if – is it okay if, if Quint stays with you next weekend? I'm like, I don't even know when he's here when he's supposed to be here. Like, <laughs> That's how we are. They they show yeah. up to do laundry. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Hey, yeah. I had like two loads in there, but whatever. You, you, you go ahead and put shit in. Yeah. He <laughs> told me that fine. today, as a matter of fact, because he <laughs> came in and I was like – he was look. He's wearing a dirty shirt. I'm like, when was the last time you did your? You did it was with four kids. You started teaching them to do their own oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Well, you did. I did with two. I mean. Yeah. Life skills. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Especially he's a junior in high school. And I said, when's the last time you did your laundry? He's like, well, that's why I was going to stop by here. I was going to throw a load in the wash. And then when I'm done with my, he's taking a college class down the road. And then after class, I'll throw it in the dryer. And I'm like, and then go to your mom's. Like, yeah. So then leave your shit in the dryer for us when we exactly. have to use it. <laughs> That's a silent plea for you to fold it, and I ignore that shit. <laughs> I will pull it out. Just throw it on his bed. You. you can take your wrinkly clothes back. <laughs> <laughs> so, how long had you guys been uh, had been empty nesters, or the kids been out before all this sickness and all that? Did you get some time to really enjoy being um, just you and the husband? Well, actually, my stepson had to go back and live with his mother when I got sepsis because he was still going to school and could bring COVID home. Okay, um, and that was really dangerous and. He's kind of back and forth. Uh, my stepdaughter was already in college at that point. Okay. So, yeah. So you're right. At r- yeah. He's he's still back and forth. Like I said, he's about to drive. She's already driving. So, I mean, it's it's going to get a little bit more. I think I'll, I'll be enjoying the pop-ins a little bit more by then. <laughs> so, yeah, we were we wound up being empty nesters at the same moment that I was sick. It was actually kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, just extra <laughs> depressing him. when you're sick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not so. like not like you're out uh, vacationing. You're just sitting at home sick for months on end. Right. And if they did come in, they had to be rubber glove masks, like mm-hmm. be really, really careful around me. So it sucked. Yeah. But I'm better now. <laughs> so I'm I'm really interested in talking about this case. So okay. I, I've been in stock in here, not stuck in, but I've been working in Harris County, Texas for Ooh. years now. It seems, you know, I worked you the know Sandy. About it. Oh, yeah. I worked the Sandy <laughs> Melgar case there. And we just wrapped up the Jennifer Jeffley case. It was also Harris County. And when I saw this one, that uh, this case, the uh, the murder of Belinda Temple was in Katy, Texas, which is just outside of mm-hmm. Houston, and also in Harris County. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, as soon as I saw that, and I, and to be honest with you, I don't know the full. I, I know the outcome of this. I don't know all the details, just little bits of it that I've researched, and then from listening to your episode. But the first thing I thought of when I saw, I was like, oh, a murder case in Harris County. What are the odds this is a wrongful conviction? Yeah. As their reputation precedes uh, precedes them there in the DA's office in Harris County. My favorite people. And I know I'm their favorite, too. Oh, of course. Yeah. (laughs) 
So <laughs> give us kind of the, the, the basics of the, of the case that we're talking about as far as what happened. And then we'll get into the crazy process that ensued afterwards. Okay. Yeah, I was going to go back and look at the actual year. <laughs> it was January 11th, 1999. Thank you. I was like 95 or 99. My last case was 95. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, they were both school teachers. He was a coach. Um, she was a really uh, beloved school teacher, taught special ed. And um, was really super involved with all of her students. And they had been uh, college sweethearts. He had been a huge football guy. Like, they were just like this golden couple, if you looked at them. And they're beautiful people Mm -hmm. and super involved in the town. And um, she got a call to pick up her son, sick from daycare. And she couldn't get a hold of her husband, David. And she was pissed. But she went and got the kid, got a hold of him. She went back to work. And then she came home and supposedly was, you know, ambushed, he says, uh, by strangers. But either way, somebody took her to her walk-in closet, made her kneel, put a shotgun to the back of her head and blew her head out. And she was eight months pregnant. So, Right. And so that is the, the victim's name is, is Belinda Temple. Her husband's Belinda name is, Temple. is David yeah. Temple. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so th- that quick timeline. So there was – because there, there was – at some point he had left – David had left with their – Son, so she picked him up from daycare. David came home, and then David yeah, left. She picked him up, and then they met. And then, um, you know, the, for the kid to be sick enough to be sent home from daycare, you know, you've had kids, you know, they mm-hmm. have to have a certain fever and everything else. And then all of a sudden he was like, No, he's fine. Uh, she's tired. You know, she's pregnant. She's tired in the afternoons. I told her to go rest, and I'm going to take Evan to a park. I'm right. Like, the kid was sick. Why are you taking him to a park? But that was his story. And he said that he wanted that Evan wanted a drink on the way to the park, so he made sure and got himself on surveillance video at a grocery store mm-hmm. at like at a really short timeline of when she would have been shot, or you know. But I mean, he says it's or his defense attorney said it was too short of a timeline, but he could have set up the whole thing, the hours waiting for her to get home. Right, it doesn't really take that long to shoot someone. Like she obviously had just set her purse down some soup down that she stopped to get for their son and then was marched straight to the closet. So, I mean, you, you in reality, everybody watches TV and thinks a murder takes like 10 minutes. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it can take like a minute, two minutes, however long it took well, to march the, her up there and then shoot her. Yeah. In this case, it could be seconds. I mean, she was shot in the back of the head with a shotgun while kneeling down yeah. in their walk-in yeah. closet where she's found. So that <sighs> was just horrific. Yeah. And and so the way this, the story goes from David's perspective is that he, he leaves, was going to take his son to the park, and they ended up, they went to the grocery mm-hmm. store and got some cat food and yeah. drinks. And then he said he went to Lowe's, but he had forgot the stuff he needed to return. I mean, like, he kind of did something to get himself on camera in a few different places. Yeah. But then there was a witness that um, he not only went to – I think he said he went to high school with David. But it wasn't only that. He was a – I guess a um, – what do you call him? I don't, I don't want to be ugly about it. A car freak. Somebody mm-hmm. who was really into cars and trucks and stuff. So he was able – and David had, like, an old fancy car truck i'm not a truck person i've forgotten Uh what it is but either way like he'd taken really good care of it and um refurbished it or whatever and dude was able to say make model color everything and i know him Uh i saw him i went to high school with him so he was seen um somewhere he wasn't supposed to be and the you know the prosecution assumed that's when he got rid of the gun because that was the big deal in the case is the murder weapon was never found right and he was a big hunter he had uh he had three brothers they all hunted And (laughs) I want to say all of his brothers and his dad testified and said, no, he never had a 12-gauge shotgun. All the rest of them did. No, no, he had a 20-gauge. Never, never did he ever have a 12-gauge. It was just really weird. 
why deny something like that when you're a hunting family? Like, yeah, he could have had a 12 gauge at some point. It doesn't mean it's the one. Yeah. I don't know. It was a silly, it was a silly line of defense in my opinion, but they never really found the gun. And I mean, uh, Kelly Siegler, the prosecutor was like, have you been to Katy, Texas? Like it's uh, rice fields and all this other stuff. And there's all kinds of places to hide it. So. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting. They weren't able to like look at his firearm purchase records and find out. I guess I don't know how well, it was I mean, in 1999. So, like for me, like, yeah, I'm a exactly. hunter, and I've got I've got several guns, but every one of them yeah, is like what, registered with the FBI. In? What's I'm in Michigan. I was gonna say, okay, well, uh, it's Texas, right? I don't even know that you know for a shotgun, especially back then, right? And they had bought all of their sons shotguns as Christmas presents when they were still in high school. Uh huh. So it could have been that old, is what they're thinking. He had one that was already sawed off that he'd had from high school and that he turned over. Mm-hmm. Um, he had the right kind of shells, but the point was that they kept making was even if they had found a shotgun, shotguns don't have the um, striation to where you can exactly identify it to the bullet the way, you know, we talk about it, ballistics and other cases right. where, you know, it's it's as good as fingerprints or something. Well, you couldn't really do that with that. Yeah. And I, I don't know what kind of round this was, but I would assume like for anybody that what, what, what Erica's talking about is um so like normally if you if they if they find a bullet they can look at the striations on the bullet that mm-hmm. are imprinted by the rifling which is just grooves that are cut inside the the barrel right. but typically with a shotgun i would imagine they're using some sort of of scatter shot so either a birdshot or buck, a- buckshot and I don't, I'm not a hunter and I've never loaded a gun sorry but <laughs> i was i was told it was a reloaded like a reused shell okay that made it different too yeah well, and it could be – so the other thing is most shot – unless it's – there are shotguns that have rifled barrels that you shoot a slug out of, which is like a really big bullet uh, that are made for longer distance, more accuracy, which maybe there might be striations on that. But – Yeah. But, this was, but yeah. most shotguns, the overwhelming majority, first of all, the barrels are smooth, so there is no grooving mm-hmm. to make striations. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, it's a it's, – it, it'll be a dozen BBs or large lead right. balls that come out all at once. Uh, so yeah, I could see how they, there's no way that they, they could they could trace that back to a particular gun. I wouldn't think. Yeah, and I think the big thing was with um, wanting to find the gun so badly. Uh, the coroner said, "Of course, you know, there's going to be blowback. There had to be blowback. That was one of the other things. Like, how you know did he get clean? How did he change clothes so quickly? And you know, in fairness, they there was no bloody footprints. There was nothing like uh-huh. that. But he had her. I don't want to get away from my microphone. He had her bend down." You know, you've got an upper clothes rack and a bottom clothes rack mm-hmm. and a um, walk-in closet. Well, he, well, he, whoever had her kneel down. And so a lot of the, I don't to be gross, the spatter, the brain matter, everything, blood went up into the clothes. Right. Now, he said there probably would be some blowback into the gun, but not a lot mm-hmm. because of the way. And, you know, for all you know, he put something to protect it or, or whatever. But I, I've never found that to be, oh, well, he couldn't have done it because he didn't have blood on him. That's, you know. Yeah. By the time they found her, he had plenty of time. It's it's in- interesting to hear because it's, it sounds like you're you're fairly convinced of his of his guilt. I don't know the case super well, but I definitely stumbled into a site where they were kind of making a case for his innocence. And it's funny how it's it's so like like they had one of the things they said was he's on and, and so to make, so this happens in just to kind of give you a little timeline here. This happened in '99, uh, yeah. and the the case was. Close or was was cold for a while, and I think it was. I'm looking at my notes. I think it was 2004. Um, yeah, it was like four or five years later. Yeah, five years later, he was arrested because they said gunshot residue on his shirt 
match the gunshot residue uh, found uh, on Belinda. They It took that long. And really, Kelly Siegler had wanted the case. They had, you know, they are like, hey, you want to take a look at this cold case? And that's kind of her thing. Right. Is to go in there and find something. And I'm sure she lit a fire under somebody at the FBI. Um, well, it came back and all of that was discredited later. They couldn't use it in court. Right. And and so that and for a little context for any of you truth and justice listeners, uh, Kelly Siegler is like so Colleen Barnett, who was the prosecutor in our season six mm-hmm. case, is a Kelly Siegler wannabe in my like she know. was trying to be so Kelly Siegler is like uh, there's, there's a lot of media attention. She's on the the TV series Cold Justice. I was gonna I forgot to mention that yeah yeah, and this is the kind of the case that that made her they say for Cold Justice right. I think she made a bid for DA shortly after this, mm-hmm. but this is what actually really she had done a lot of really flamboyant cases, but this is the one that put her over the top. Yeah, and so the and so the case for innocence. One of the things is is pretty tough to get around unless you can explain to me why it's not. So he, okay. it's not until 2004 when he's finally arrested. Uh, the, like you said, the gunshot rev- residue was was determined to be junk and and was tossed out. wasn't able to use. Mm-hmm. Use a trial. They did find out that he was having an affair, and there were claims that he was being emotionally abusive. Uh, so he's convicted. He's sentenced to life. Now rewind a little bit before David gets arrested, and a guy named Riley Joe Sanders the third was a suspect. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, the um, David's family yeah, uh, Joe for clarity. <laughs> Joe. So you don't have to say Riley Joe every time. Yeah, it's he just went Joe. By Joe. Okay, he, it goes by Joe. He's, he's not dead that I know of. Yeah. So so David's family pointed the police towards Joe. As he was a student that that Belinda had had problems with, and he was a pothead and he skipped a lot of class. But um, you know, they were neighbors, and Belinda would you know turn him in. And right. he had a party one time when uh, his parents were out of town, and there was beer bottles in her yard, and she told on him. I would have too. It's not just a teacher thing, but I don't think it's the kind of thing that would make a sixteen-year-old kid go blow her head off. Right. Well, and, I can't imagine what would cause anyone to want to blow someone's yeah. head off. No, I can't either. But when it comes to a grown man that there was a lot of witnesses, there was a lot of abuse, not necessarily physical, more like coercive control, mm-hmm. you know, isolating her from her family. Right. Uh, you know, demeaning her looks. There was a lot of this kind of stuff over the years. It's definitely red flags that we know. Right. And, you know, just being the control freak that he was, it's, I'm not saying that Riley Joe couldn't have done it. Oh, look at me. I told you to call him Joe and I did. <laughs> Joe it's Sanders just couldn't Joe have done Erica. it. <laughs> yeah, it's just Joe. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> there just wasn't enough. Um, he he and his family were very cooperative and turned over every gun they had. And uh-huh. Again, there was a, there was a, he actually had a shotgun with blood on it. It didn't match David or Bel- Belinda. It had to do with a hunting right thing. And it was just because his movements of the day couldn't really be nailed down. He had skipped school again, but his dad alibied him, and then his girlfriend said, you know, well, you know. He told me this at this time of day. And then later she was like, well, there's no way he would have kept that to himself. He's not yeah. the kind of person that could have kept a secret. But it's just because he was running around with these kids and they had supposedly found another because what it, they were trying to make it look like or what the crime scene was supposed to look like was like a burglary gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, the drawers were a little bit rifled through, but it was really super interesting because you can see it in crime scene photos very easily that like David had a tray of jewelry. Right. Um, a big fat gold watch and his, you know, championship ring from college and all that sitting right there and they didn't steal it. Uh, they didn't go through her purse. They didn't, you know, 
if somebody was there to rob the house, like they pick the TV up and set it over gently uh-huh. instead of taking it with them. And this was back in 99. So it's not like those great big, huge TVs that you can't carry out. Right. But um, it didn't look, it looked like a setup, not like a real robbery. Well, they found out a few weeks before that Joe and his friends had been involved in something similar where they just kind of rifled through. Right. And, uh, you know, it's possible that they just wanted cash. That's why they didn't take the TV. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to pawn anything. They just wanted quick cash. Sure, that's possible. Um, but you can't tell me a bunch of teenagers are going to come in there and leave nothing. No sign of anything when they do this to this woman. Like, that's just, you know. Right. David's always going to have the excuse of, well, of course my fingerprints are there. It's my house. Sure. Of course my DNA is there, you know. And it, to find nothing with that many kids that supposedly went in. And then again, it, why would the 16-year-old, like, they tried to make it out that there was this big, he hated her so much. And it actually wasn't true. He really liked her. He joked with her all the time. She was called Miss Sunshine. She was mm-hmm. the kind of teacher that motivated kids. She stood in the hallway and was like, what are you doing? Get your butt to class, right. that kind of person. And he really liked her. So there wasn't this kind of animosity that his family tried to make it out to be, more or less. Right. And they didn't have anything more on Joe than they did David, well, as far as where he was and, you know. And that, and then the, the twist comes in, if, if my information is correct, and this is where I want to, you mm-hmm. tell me if I'm right here. So, so David is convicted, sentenced to life. After mm-hmm. he's convicted, Joe confessed to the murder, which th- no, no, he well so, confessed. So what I have what I have here is that is that Joe uh, at one point confessed to the murder, and that caused David's conviction to be overturned. He was tried a second time and was convicted again. Even with well, let me tell you about the con- confession. He confessed to a friend, um, and okay. the friend wound up falling apart so bad they d- they couldn't use him on the stand. Okay. What happened was, um, it, I don't even remember what TV show he had said it was at the time. They actually figured out that was a lie, too. And he claimed that he said he robbed a house and that he had to put the dog down in the closet. And it wasn't even a full confession of, I shot Belinda Temple. It was, well, we robbed this house. And it was real similar to what happened because they had this uh-huh. ferocious dog. He said he had just seen a television show about the Temple case, and it made him feel really bad. And remember what his buddy had said all those years ago. So he called it in as a tip, I guess, to his lawyer. I don't remember how they did it, but he completely fell apart under questioning. He had um, all these drug charges. He actually had assault charges on his own, almost beat a man to death. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not like Joe Sanders went on record and confessed so that's does that make sense yeah and that is that was the extent of the confession yes okay it was bullshit yeah so that that is the difference from looking uh at the Mm -hmm. the advocates david's advocates the way they just put it is that he had confessed but but now david's conviction was thrown out at one point it was and was it based on that or was it because of something else Mm -mm. prosecutorial misconduct no shit not Uh, in harris county (laughs) oh no right (laughs) You know, it's funny, though, um, and if you do listen to my episode, I actually defend her on uh-huh. this because I thought it was really funny. Uh, so I, I found I caught it in an article about it. I forget. That makes me mad. Um, who the journalist was that pointed out that Harris County had this policy of keeping the murder file open uh-huh. until you asked for an evidentiary hearing. And then, bam. So you had access to it for as long as, you know, the case was open pretrial hearings. Right. But if you asked for this certain hearing, they were like, and it was just. Um, at the time, the way they law, the law was, they didn't have to share it mm-hmm. until they put somebody on the stand. And so then she would just dole it out to him very slowly. Right. 
And there was this point in the trial, and he had already had him, I think it was from November to February, so December, January. He had had it for three months, had access to all of this. Mm-hmm. And when he asked for an evidentiary hearing at trial, she literally looked at him and said, are you sure you want to do that? You know it closes the file. And he right. said, yes. Well, then, you know, an evidentiary hearing is brought because she couldn't get an indictment at first. Well, then uh-huh. she went and got an indictment. So he lost his hearing and the file got closed. Well, he had had three months access to this. So he should have known all of this already. Three months is enough time. What was it what that they was said in they there? Uncovered. It was like 1,400 pages, they said, of documents. And it was mostly about... um polygraph tests and and all this stuff and the fact that joe sanders had indeed been a suspect at once because she denied uh-huh. that pretty heavily at trial that was probably the only thing i would say she did that might have been kind of shady was act like he had never been a suspect mm-hmm. um but other than that like she didn't really withhold any evidence you know she put the people up and he was able to use joe sanders in the first trial as the alternate suspect theory uh he just did he claimed he didn't have all of the information Right. About Joe Sanders, you know, his movements that day and the guns he had access to, because he did have access to the same kind of guns she was killed with and all of that. And, but he basically knew all of that. And it was just a bid. And they got really super lucky with a judge that gave her the most heinous smackdown. But if you watch, like you can actually watch the hearings with the judge and she is so condescending and just mad about being there and just like rub the judge the wrong way. And mm-hmm. you know, that's not how you act when you're in trouble. Right. <laughs> you're, you're in a misconduct t- hearing. You're like, yes, sir. No, sir. You know, and here's this, what I did this way. And, and you don't act that way. And I'm pretty sure that's why she got the smackdown. Because my point was he knew this stuff. He, you know, uh, I think even the guy in the article said the word something like, you know, he took a legal gamble. By asking for the evidentiary hearing, he could have had unfettered access to it the whole time and lost. And so then he could pretend like he didn't know what was in that file right. and still prop up Joe as a, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like he could pretend like he didn't know that the, how they ruled him out, you know, you know, through polygraph tests, through this, um, through different, you know, because they did eventually rule him out that or they would have made an arrest in 99 or 2000 or whatever. Believe me, there was a lot of heat on this case. You don't murder yeah. an eight-year or eight-month pregnant beloved school teacher, and people aren't, you know, clamoring for an arrest. So if they could have arrested Joe Sanders, they would have. But yeah, they got really lucky with the the judge at the misconduct hearing, and she got the smackdown, and he got a new trial. Well, I mean, he basically his lawyer basically put on the same. Same defense, defense the second time mm-hmm. and you know i think the jury came back even faster uh there's just i think a lot of times with juries and i say this a lot myself that i really love circumstantial evidence like dna is great don't get me wrong mm-hmm. it's it's always better to have that kind of affirming evidence or whatever but um when you can tell a story and you could tell a story with this case you could watch them you know from the beginning of the relationship and how controlling he was and even to the point of where neighbors were like, she was super friendly and he was just this jerk. Mm-hmm. And he had this mean, awful dog that he would kind of laughingly sick on kids and stuff. And, you know, just you could just see the timeline of everything that was bad. And he was openly having this affair. Everybody knew about it. It was really, really depressing. And it had just been their anniversary and her 30th birthday, just like less than two weeks before she was murdered. Mm-hmm. And he had spent New Year's Eve with a girlfriend and lied and said he went hunting and had pretty much told the girlfriend that he was going to leave his wife and build a life with her. And of course he wound up marrying her, I think two or three years. I think it was two years later. They were engaged within a a year 
They started ma- uh, dating a month after her murder. His, yeah. The girl that he was with at the time. And then within a year, they were engaged. Within two years, they were married. So, like, he had the motive. You look at the 16-year-old pothead kid who's been skipping class, and, you know, it's just this teacher that kind of kicks his ass every now and then. Is he really going to blow her head off? Like, come on. You know, the, he, he, Joe Sanders never had any other kind of record. By the time he was in court um, the first time, and he was a nice, well-spoken, grown man. By the time he was in court the second time, he was a father. Mm-hmm. And was like, I'm tired of this following me around. I'm Riley Joe Sanders III, and I can't pass my name on because my name is now attached to this this case, and it's not fair. And I, I really felt that. Like, I mean, to be dragged through this for so long, and it's such a heinous murder, you know, and Again, the defense had it the second time they had unfettered access to all of it, and the jury didn't believe it. Right. And I think the jury wants to believe a story. And when you put up a, you know, a pothead 16-year-old next to a cheating, uh, abusive husband, who are you going to choose? Right. Well, and there was more to it. And to be and to be clear, like, from me listening to your episode on it, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm halfway through your second episode, uh, the, the part two, I definitely think that most likely the guy is guilty. But yeah. but but the thing that, that got my attention to is is like it's it's like the, the Harris County still hasn't learned this lesson in twenty yes. in twenty twenty because like I mean yeah there's it's his defense may have may have pulled some tricks but the bottom line is that Kelly Siegler cheated and and when you and, and another I get so pissed off at dirty cops and dirty prosecutors because it's not only that innocent people get locked up but in some situations like this and there was a big risk here. It ended up working out in their favor in the end after it spent a ton of money that maybe they got the right guy and his conviction got overturned because she did, you know, like I said, when she, when she goes, just the fact that she's telling the jury that Joe was never a suspect when in the file he clearly mm-hmm. was, you can't lie to the jury. You can't present false evidence. She knew no, that. and she had no reason to do that because yeah. honestly, she still could have presented him as, yes, he was an original suspect. You know, you get the cop on the stand. Who was mm-hmm. the one that had decided to um, to say no? He's no longer a suspect. We've written him off or whatever. I mean, right. she could have taken them through that whole thing. There was no reason to lie. But instead, so no, I agree with you on that point. Um, the only thing I, I've always thought was shady was that his lawyer had access to all of it. He yeah. really did. Well, Harris County. And if County he had done his then. job, he could have he could have gotten what he wanted out of her, basically. But um, yeah, I mean, I'll, and she also put up certain cops that didn't necessarily investigate Joe. Right. It was the people that were on the scene and, you know, but again, yeah, there was really no reason to hide it. You might as well face it head on. Mm-hmm. If you really believe in your case that much, then why hide it? Yeah. Especially if you're going to, you know, cost the taxpayers another trial, bring two families, you know, who've been grieving or trying to rebuild all this time back into everything. And then even like Joe Sanders, you know, trying to move on with his life, he gets dragged back into it. And, um, and then, yeah, give David Temple hope if he is innocent. Yeah. They couldn't make his bond this time. He sat in jail mm-hmm. wait, waiting for the new trial. And that's what's interesting. I've never done a case where um, they're – well, first of all, I always do finished cases. I don't do unsolved. Right. I don't do missing cases. It's just not my forte. I'm a storyteller. I need to end. Right. But um, he's not been sentenced because of COVID. Oh, really? He's still – yeah, he's still sitting there waiting for a hearing. And I have never, the judge actually called a mistrial just on the sentencing portion, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really strange. And what happened was the jurors could not agree on what he should get. Mm -hmm. I think some of the jurors felt like, well, he had served this much time. So let's give him probation or let's give him 10 years. Mm -hmm. And there were other jurors that were like, he killed his pregnant wife. Life. Right. (laughs) You know? 
So they couldn't agree. I mean, typically, I don't know, I, I kept researching it and, you know, the laws. And I think I found three states and it wasn't even considered in Texas yet because it just happened. Mm-hmm. Only three other states that allow that. I mean, that that's not a complete and total, you know. And his attorney fought and said, well, then we should get a whole new trial. What's going to happen at the retrial in the sentencing part? They're just going to put on the guilty evidence. Right. They're not going to show, you know, alternate suspects or anything like, you know, that's kind of weird. Yeah. I, I've never, have you come across a case like that? Cause I've, I'm curious about that. I, uh, no, I haven't. I mean, the, the Scott Peterson case is going, California is going through something similar to that where his, if, if I remember correctly, his conviction wasn't overturned or maybe I know they were working on that too, but his sentence was overturned due to some misconduct. And so they were going, okay, then yeah, that's, yeah, they yeah. were going, they, they, they may, and it may have already been done by now. I know that case makes me so sick anyway. Um, <laughs> Same. <laughs> but, but they were, I know for sure the first thing that happened was his, 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 his sentence was overturned and they were reevaluating a sentence because there was misconduct in the sentencing. But it's just, you know, it's, it's like all this, all this could have been avoided by the prosecutor doing her job right. And yeah, doing it exactly. fairly. And like, and and she like, shouldn't have had anything to hide from. No. That's the thing that kills me is like, if you feel that strongly about your case, put it all up there. Well, that's what I What does it matter? That's what I you always know, or say. Or don't take it to court. Yeah. That's what I always say. <laughs> you it, got one shot. Yeah. If you can't present all of the evidence and make your case, then there's a chance you might have the wrong person. So exactly. Or wait. Yeah. You know, there's no statute of limitations, first of all, but you get one shot. Yeah. If the, he gets the acquittal, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you screw it up that first time, then you've screwed it up for life mm-hmm. and you know if you want to rush to court that's one thing and her thing is i mean her show's called cold justice that was kind of her thing right um is cold cases she would come in and like basically pick up trash that somebody else couldn't fix and pull a case out of it and that's great that's i mean that's an excellent talent to have and to actually make a case out of it that's really cool but the only reason she got an arrest was that original um the findings from the FBI that finally came back and then it wound up being tossed out. Right. So she basically went to court with circumstantial evidence. She knew that. Yeah. You know, and there, and there was, there was certainly like the, the biggest thing that stood out to me is the fact that he had this, they had this big, huge, ferocious dog in the backyard. The back window to the, in, in the, in the door was broken out. Like there was forcible mm-hmm. entry in the back. The first thing I thought of was like, how, if we got this dog that is so ferocious dog? that the, the police couldn't get back there. Then how did someone get into the backyard and break into the house with that dog back there? That was part of her case. And yeah. he said that because there was something wrong with the fence door, I think is what he said, that the dog had been in the garage. Like, And you know, there were neighbors to dispute this. Mm-hmm. The dog was always in the yard. Right. The dog was in the yard when the police got there. It was so bad that one of the officers almost shot the dog mm-hmm. because he was lunging and snapping and they right. didn't know what to do until David came out. And it was actually a her dog, um, a she dog. Got her to settle down and, and put her in the garage but, so the police could come into the house. That's how ferocious she was. Right. She was in the yard. It's bullshit. So, yeah, they've always said, okay, if it was a stranger, if it had been Joe Sanders plus his, you know, four friends or whatever he might have had with him that day, you're trying to tell me that dog wouldn't have got a yeah. piece of one of them? Yeah. It's bullshit, you know? Yeah. And they also, you, you talk about the glass with the door. Usually when you break glass in a door, it's because it's closed and you're trying to stick your hand in to unlock it mm-hmm. and it would be like, Right at, at your, the glass would be at your feet when you walk in. Mm-hmm. Well, the glass was slung all the way back over to the left, mm-hmm. almost as if he did it once the door was open. And, right. you know, they tried to explain this a bunch of different ways. And, you know, well, maybe the door pushed her, maybe it got pushed aside. No, no, not all of it would have been. So, I mean, right straight from when you walk in the door, it looked fishy. Right. And the fact nothing's so. taken. Like I said, I, I, I have 
I have don't have much doubt that he's probably guilty. I just yeah. I I'm so sick of all the cases I keep seeing from Harris County over and over and over, and it's the same bullshit. I know all the time. Well, it's funny because I was just like you when I, I started looking on the other stuff and found out a little bit more about Joe Sanders. I was like, hey, you know what? And I went back to uh, my research and was like, I need you to dig into this. Mm-hmm. I want you to dig into Kelly Siegler. And oh my god, I can make a whole episode out of the bullshit she has pulled. Yeah. I mean, she she's known for it, you know, and I mean, she's gotten, I think she's had three defamation lawsuits mm-hmm. since cold justice started. Yeah. And then after this one happened, well, they shut the show down. And then when COVID happened, everything shut down for a little while. And they're pretty much talking about canceling it because she's had three defamation lawsuits. Then this one keeps coming back up and her name, like she had had to be drugged to that misconduct hearing. And um, they're kind of done with her. They had already sold it to a different network. I forget which I don't know if she went to Oxygen to USA or back and forth, which way that went. Um, and it's still up in the air whether or not she'll be renewed. So Yeah. And that culture is still just there. No reason even to act that way. Even like you were talking about like the defense having access to the files. Like Harris County had the case I just dealt with, um, which was a nineteen ninety six case. But what they had was and it it wasn't from my understanding, this was a Texas law back then, but there weren't most everywhere else I've worked in Texas would still turn everything over in discovery. But right. they didn't have to turnover but but they all did except harris county any witness Mm -hmm. statements unless uh, until until the person testified which is exactly fucking bananas like you so in the case we so you get it piecemeal yeah and you can't really and you don't together your case yeah you don't get the full picture so for example the jennifer jeffley case we just did for truth and justice right so there was Mm -hmm. four witnesses in in an apartment building well all four of them told four different stories to the police about what happened and one of them changed her story, who ended up being their star witness, had changed her story three times, alibying herself. In my opinion, oh, she most likely is the one that was actually guilty. The defense had none of that. They didn't know any. It, all they got was after she testified, they gave, they turned over her one written statement. And so that's so all what, he had. What year was this? This was I'm 96. Sorry, I didn't interrupt you. 96, a okay, trial in 97. Yeah. And so. You know, at first I was like, this lawyer is so horrible. Why, how has he not read these statements? And then you realize, like, they never gave them to him. They didn't have to. And it wasn't against the law. Right. She didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. So, you know, that was my other thing about calling it misconduct is that, you know, this was Texas law. Um, I covered the Michael Morton case, which was an actual innocence um, case. Right. And he's the one that you've, you've heard of the Michael Morton Act. He's yeah, the yeah. one that got, you know, mm-hmm. if you've got exculpatory evidence of any kind, you have to turn it over. Right. You got the law changed. And, oh, God, see, I told you, once I've done a case, it's out of my head. I forget when that was, but it was well after this. Yeah. Um, Michael Morton had changed everything, so. Yeah, and it was, and it's crazy. I mean, the fact that that was, the, imagine, you know, for example, a case that I'm very familiar with, the Jennifer Jeffley one, that, that's a great example of it. Imagine being the defense attorney that is trying to defend that case and the evidence that the guilty party or a, or a person of interest is sitting there on the witness mm-hmm. stand lies in the witness statements from these other three people and her changing stories. Mm-hmm. And the defense has no idea that the, that the other two even gave statements and they have no idea that she's changed her story. All they get is this one. I mean, and again, you know, I talked about it in, in an episode of truth and justice recently, the fact that our system is designed as though the prosecution has all the disadvantage because they have the burden of proof and it's complete bullshit. Like they have all well, the, yeah. advantage, especially back then in Texas. Mm-hmm. They had all the advantage, and I'm and I'm sure it's not guilty until proven innocent. I mean, we yeah we know that. I'm trying to look at the what year the Michael Morton Act passed because it was in the 2000. 
Uh, I feel like it was around 2012. I actually met Michael Morton. Uh, yeah. Did you really? Yeah, I was. I think he's such a nice guy. One of our cases um, in Smith County, Texas, the uh, Carrie Max Cook case, I was there when his conviction was overturned and Michael Morton was there. Um, so I got to meet him and chat with him for a minute. I can't find it, but I think you're right. It's around 2012 or so. Yeah. But there's another case where they were all this exculpatory evidence was withheld. You know, in his case, there finally was DNA evidence that proved his innocence. Mm-hmm. But the, the prosecution had just withheld. Oh, and what's so bad is there, uh, I think it was a little girl or a little boy, I don't remember, um, was actually a witness to what the scary man had done to the mom. Right. And he kept saying the monster had a mustache. And well, sure enough, you know, um, the guy that they wound up getting through DNA evidence years later that exonerated Michael, mm-hmm. um, when you looked at photos of him back then, he had a mustache. He was exactly how, how the child had described him. And the child had just been written off. Nope, that's, you know. And it was all based on the fact that Michael Morton had written a pissy note to his wife the night before. He was mad at her. Right. That was all they ba- – well, you know, the name of my episode is It's Always the Husband. You know that's a trope. Right, right. In, in true crime. I mean, it's you see it everywhere on TV and in podcasts. Mm-hmm. But that was the name of my episode because they just zeroed in on him from the get-go. And they had been having a romantic evening. She was tired and didn't want to have sex and just kind of fell asleep and started snoring. And he read her – Wrote her a, like a shitty note. It would hurt my feelings if my husband left me a note and said, uh-huh. you farted and started snoring and went to sleep and it hurt my feelings. And I'd be like, great, thanks. You know? Right. But I mean, think about the last thing you'd write to your wife. Like, I mean, <laughs> it kind of made me think about don't send a shitty text or don't, you know, right. <laughs> when you're mad. Because that's the last thing they saw and just assumed, oh, well, you know, then he killed her. Oh, come on. Because she fell asleep and he wanted to have sex. Like, no. Right. But yeah. And th- so the overall, as we're wrapping this up, the overall moral of the story oh, yeah, here is is for prosecutors to do their damn job right, whether they're innocent or guilty. Mm-hmm. Have a case. If you don't have a case, don't mm-hmm. take it. In this case, things seem to have worked out, even though the case was was the conviction was overturned. He was convicted again. He's still awaiting sentencing, all because right. they didn't follow the rules. Uh, to hear more stories like this. Your podcast uh, says that it, it, you're exploring the dark underbelly of the Deep South. That is right. And and there are over 100 and coming up on, what, 140 episodes by the time this airs? We're coming up on actually 130 this week. It was, should have been so – I mean, I lost those four months when I was sick. But, yeah, it's coming up on 130. There's plenty to listen to. And the, the murder of Belinda Temple just aired – uh, when you're hearing this just a few weeks ago, it's a two-parter. Each part is about an hour, so check that out. Her name is Erica Kelly, and the podcast is called Southern Fried True Crime. Check it out. It'll be your next big true crime binge. Thanks so much, Erica. Thank you, Bob. Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. 
Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another true crime binge.